Okay, uh, welcome everybody uh, to Chief of Station, episode six. Uh, today we have Anthony Craig uh, uh, speaking to us about two, two very interesting topics. Uh, Anthony, will you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Yeah, I'm uh, Dr. Tony Craig. I'm Associate Professor in Modern History at Staffordshire University, uh, and I have a particular interest in intelligence studies, intelligence history, and uh, I, I, I present and uh, research in a number of kind of related areas uh, to uh, intelligence in the past. And uh, yeah, we have a, a number of kind of fantastic programmes here at Staffordshire University, uh, both at the BA and MA level, uh, that include uh, intelligence studies and uh, a new courses coming online as well uh, that, that uh, are both distance learning as well as courses that are for uh, students attending here uh, that include uh, intelligence as uh, kind of key components of uh, how we study history, how we study politics and international relations uh, more generally. Now, before we get in, into topic, um, I'm, I'm very curious as to the sort of the profile of the different students that join uh, your programs. Could you elaborate a little bit into that? Yeah, we have uh, regular undergraduates, uh, the kind of, uh, the, you would expect the kind of 18, 19 year old school leavers, a healthy community of mature students as well. Um, but uh, the, the, the majority of our students at the minute are actually uh, distance learning students inside uh, the, 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 the British military, uh, UK armed forces. And they study part time uh, by distance learning, both kind of uh, uh, through a, what's what we call a top up program, where we use elements of their military training, uh, particularly in military intelligence, uh, in order to kind of push them into uh, the final year uh, relatively kind of quickly. Um, as well as students who already have degrees who are in the military and uh, want to uh, progress with master's programs related to to their work. So I work on an MA on intelligence and international relations. Uh, but the, the university offers a wide range of kind of uh, ways of uh, certifying um, uh, uh, military related kind of expertise in engineering, uh, aerospace, uh, uh, cyber uh, security and so on. Uh, so it's, it's one of those things that can both help military careers as well as help the careers of those who are leaving the military and going uh, back into kind of civilian life as well. Uh, so we've had fantastically successful programs there as well as, as the regular undergraduates. Where we have, yeah, I think uh, our biggest kind of seller at the minute is the fact that we have a hundred percent student satisfaction over the last three years in a row uh, in our in the UK National Student Survey. So we're we're well 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 regarded by our students. We look after them really well, and uh, and uh, and they encourage us to be fantastic teachers as well. Yeah, as somebody who studied intelligence in the UK, I I am very aware very well aware about the, the student survey and it speaks volumes on uh, the quality of teaching, also the quality of life at the university. Uh, but I, as a former international student, uh, student uh, what's the ratio? Do you have many international applicants uh, in any of your programs or is mostly uh, just UK? Uh, yeah, well, the, the, BA, the MA by distance learning programs in international relations, international diplomacy and so on, they are, are worldwide. We just got a, uh, one of our graduates just got an honorary doctorate actually, uh, because he was involved, uh, he's uh, Yugoslavian, but he was involved in the Syrian uh, chemical weapons in, uh, in investigations. So he was working at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. And uh, uh, if you go on our Facebook uh, uh, page, Facebook slash Hispol Staffs, um, or just search for us, uh, there's a great picture of him. He got the Légion d'honneur from the French government and uh, now an honorary doctorate from Staffordshire University, which I'm, uh, I'm sure he'll hold in, in just as high regard. Um, uh, so yeah, we've got uh, students from uh, Africa, students from the Caribbean, we have students from Canada, uh, we have students uh, uh, on those MA distance learning programs from, from all over the world. Um, and uh, and yeah, they, 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 they interact in this online environment really well. Um, as far as uh, attendance courses are concerned, yeah, I've got students from um, students from Malta, uh, Saudi Arabia at the minute. Uh, uh, we are also part of the Erasmus program or whatever replaces that with regard to Brexit. Um, so we get Dutch students and German students, uh, and French students quite regularly uh, on our programs as well. I appreciate that because uh, if one of the things that we're 
extremely valuable to me sitting in the UK, averaged with uh, the program in Cambridge where, where I first met you, or Brunel University was being able to interact with people from many different backgrounds and countries. Uh, obviously, as I transitioned into the professional life, these friendships became also part of my own network because we, uh, everybody studied the same international relations and intelligence. And a lot of us ended up transitioning to the, the world of intelligence government or private sector. And this sort of like became this part of, of, of a vast network that otherwise would have been impossible to obtain if I had remained here in the United States and only studied with um, people from the United States with maybe only a few international students. But um, that is something that I truly value about my experience uh, in the UK. Uh, but tell me about the learning outcomes uh, when it comes to, to the, this, these two degree schemes. And also uh, if you could shed some uh, insights on more or less the, the professional um, goals or the professional backgrounds that stud students obtain after graduating from uh, these yes. degrees. Efren, as luck would have, I have slides. <laughs> no, the, uh, yeah, so. Yeah, please. <laughs> as if by magic. Uh, no, the uh, so yeah, the uh, the BA International Relations History and Global Politics program is one of these. It's you know, it's a program that is very often when you go to go to a university, you're you're um, subject to the expertise of the faculty that work there, and obviously that's 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 going to be the case. Uh, but what we do uh, on our program is try to meet uh, meet in the middle somewhere between what the uh, uh, lecturers are absolutely expert on and what we think the future challenges uh, are in the world and uh, or what kinds of expertise, what kinds of subject matter students would benefit from, from, from learning uh, in their long-term careers. So uh, this kind of curatorship of a degree uh, allied with our uh, uh, very structured employability framework, which runs through the whole three years, uh, basically ensures that you don't, you don't ju just develop the skills of essay writing and research in, uh, 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 in, in areas that aren't going to be of particular use to you, but you develop them in areas that are of importance to employers, um, as well as uh, uh, you understand what those skills are uh, so that you can sell those skills in your CVs, in your resumes, in your job applications, uh, uh, kind of going forward as well. So kind of relevant courses and modules that, 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 uh, and areas that we cover in this that, that, that would be useful to this, the viewers and readers, listeners of this podcast would be things like uh, our modules in Western security threats in, in, in international relations theory, Western intelligence history, Russian security history, uh, and things like that. Uh, when we go on to uh, the uh, security and intelligence program, which is a, a new program that we're, that we're kind of rolling out um, on the back of our huge success with the, the UK armed forces, um, we, uh, uh, we basically designed a program with two pathways. Uh, students come in, uh, on the first year and study all the same modules and components uh, uh, related to security and intelligence uh, that include both technical aspects of, of intelligence collection uh, and cybersecurity, as well as the kind of analytical components, uh, uh, the, the, the disciplines of IR history and, uh, and, and so on and criminology. So the idea is that uh, in the second year, then you choose, students choose whether to go down a more sciences, more technical kind of uh, 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 mode of study, um, or they go down and uh, uh, the more kind of humanities oriented, social sciences oriented uh, 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 elements of a, of, a pro, of a bachelor's of arts program. Basically, uh, the, the, the program is designed around the intelligence cycle in the sense that uh, if you choose the sciences, you you will still study the whole of the intelligence cycle, uh, but you will ex uh, become expert, more expert on the right hand side of the diagram, the planning, the direction, collection, uh, processing and so on. Uh, if you go on the uh, studies pathway, the security intelligence studies BA pathway, you end up with uh, kind of more uh, greater kind of emphasis on the development of skills that are useful on the left hand side of the intelligence cycle. Uh, analysis, dissemination, argumentation, kind of making yourself convincing uh, to, to, to others. Um, so yeah, uh, modules include things like security technology, digital forensics, uh, investigation methods, um, as well as the more kind of studies side, uh, uh, discussions of global security, intelligence history, uh, terrorism and counterterrorism, conflict analysis and, 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 and things like that. 
Um, so yeah, the, uh, these, these programs uh, do reflect and have embedded in them intelligent studies. Um, uh, but what is intelligent studies if it isn't interdisciplinary? Uh, it's not something that has a sound grounding in any existing kind of uh, subject area, but in fact can choose and pick and choose uh, dis uh, academic, a range of academic disciplines. Great, I appreciate it. Uh, and also to, to those members uh, or followers, uh, I suggest you take a look at, uh, at the Staffordshire University. I know that a lot of them are students and they may be looking uh, to uh, continue their education at the postgrad level, or maybe some of them may be military and they may want to, uh, to, to do a BA um, as part of their professional development. So I highly recommend taking a look at this. I will link uh, um, all the information uh, uh, when we release this podcast. Yeah. But now the, the, uh, the armed forces programs are not limited to UK armed forces. Um, and we've had Canadian, Irish, uh, uh, some French uh, uh, and members of their armed forces involved as, uh, in these programs in the past. And um, strangely, no Americans. But, uh, you know, that, 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 that isn't that isn't uh, uh, for, for, for a lack of designers or so well, on. So these are UK accredited uh, uh, BA and MA programs. And we're delighted to take all inquiries. Yeah, that should probably change, you know, that uh, in terms of intelligence studies, I always thought that there is no better place to go in the UK. It is more developed, it is more established. Uh, all the household names that you read about uh, are, are there. So uh, it, it's a very good place in general to look towards uh, intelligence studies, education, and intelligence in general. Um, do you have any uh, additional information regarding this? No, no, just... All right. Uh, just ready for my talk. <laughs> Perfect. So now, now we can transition into, into topics. So um, as you know, this issue of political interference has been uh, uh, on the media since 2016, right? And then you have uh, talk about uh, Russian political interference again during the 2020 election. Uh, but I think that it is, it, it is extremely important for, uh, for everybody to understand that uh, this type of activities is not, historically speaking, hasn't just been conducted by Russia. It has been conducted by <laughs> every other state, obviously, including the United States and Great Britain. So um, today, uh, uh, for those, uh, for the audience, uh, uh, Tony is going to be talking to us about political interference as cover action, uh, 2020, and then walking backwards through history up until World War One. So with that being said, Tony, I give you the floor. Well, many thanks, Efren. Um, yeah, so the, the, the title of today's talk is Political Interference is Covert Action. Uh, I've given this talk a number of times um, uh, to both student audiences, uh, military audiences and, uh, and academic audiences uh, with a kind of a view and I continually updated, of course, with new information. But the, 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 the broad kind of hypothesis in this talk is that uh, there's actually less new uh, in many of the allegations that were alleged of Russia uh, uh, interfering in the American elections over the last uh, number of years. Uh, in fact, there's nothing new about Russian interference in American elections full stop. Uh, they've been doing it in the 1980s. They've been doing it in the 1970s. Um, but the, the most recent allegations have been around this idea that uh, uh, the Russian intelligence somehow worked to promote fake news stories and pro-Trump opinions on social media platforms in the months prior to both the 2016 and 2020 US presidential election. Uh, further kind of allegations and kind of wild uh, stories about tampering with election machines and so on, I'm not going to get, go into some, some of them are frankly silly, um, but the, the, you know, the, the, the actual evidence that Russia was doing this, uh, this kind of you know, spreading fake news stories and so on uh, is, is out there and it's reliable. And broadly speaking, um, a lot of this material kind of uh, emanates from Russia's very own, uh, the Russian government's own uh, internet research agency uh, based in this uh, relatively small office building in St. Petersburg. You know, this is home of Russia's troll army um, where bloggers here are paid to flood social media uh, uh, with pro-Kremlin opinions. Um, they leave an audit trail, however. You know, $100,000 was spent, for example, in, in 2016 on geographically targeted adverts on, on, on Facebook. 
uh, prior to the, uh, uh, the, the election of Donald Trump. Um, uh, however, you know, you know, with the Mueller report and so on, and you can discuss kind of the, 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 you know, the reliability of Mueller, of course, who has that relationship with uh, Donald Trump. Um, but his, his report com comes out in 2019, it was finally published in 2019, uh, concluded that Russia had interfered in a sweeping and systematic fashion in the US election. Um, now, certainly, I'm not going to go through all this material here, but uh, there are things that we know. Uh, there are things that, that, that are blatantly obvious. There are things that we have found out, the, the known unknowns, and there are things that we don't really know or can't really tell uh, about what's been going on with regard to uh, this election interference. Certainly, we can say that uh, the Russian government seemed to prefer a Trump presidency uh, over, over other ones. And they were manipulating social media where, where and when possible. Uh, that the democratic computers were hacked and emails were intercepted and leaked to the press. Uh, note that I don't say Russia there, but it's it's a known known that the hacking happened and the leaking happened. Um, the Hunter Biden story more recently also was something that was happened and was kind of released and, and, and emphasized in the press, whether it was Russia that was doing it or not, uh, I, I'll leave for investigators to, to, to find out. Uh, the things that we know now that we probably shouldn't have known uh, or, or was expected to have known was that the Russian government were organizing that hacking, targeting leaks and social media promotion to sow dissent against the candidates opposed to Trump. Uh, we know that officials from the Russian government uh, uh, attempted to make contact with the Trump administration uh, early in government. But every government was trying to make uh, uh, contact with the Trump government uh, early, in, early in, the, in the transition process. That's just what other governments do. Um, uh, the use of proxy groups and Iran uh, seems to be kind of emerging uh, from the 2020 uh, election where no longer this internet research agency, but other groups that are linked with uh, Russia and the Russian government and Russian kind of backed uh, governments are involved in this, uh, in similar activity. More difficult to trace, uh, but the evidence seems to be emerging. And that Russia's efforts um, had been aimed at denigrating uh, President Biden's candidacy and the Democratic Party supporting former President Trump, undermining public confidence in the electoral process and exacerbating social political divisions in the US. And um, if you don't believe me, that's the that's the US Director of National uh, Intelligence uh, 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 and his uh, report from just a few weeks ago. No, so what do what don't we know? Well, we don't know whether these uh, uh, whether any of these measures affected the election results at all. Uh, we can't tell whether one single person was uh, uh, convinced by any specific and single material sent by the Russian government and kind of uh, uh, spread all over the internet. We don't know whether Trump and his team uh, uh, knew that his team were making the contacts. Uh, they were doing and for what ends. Uh, that's not something that seems to have come out uh, uh, in much uh, or great detail. And we don't know what the Russian government actually sought to gain from, from contacts after uh, Trump's election and after his you know, presumed re-election. Um, you know, was there something specific that Russia was looking for? Was there something that they particularly feared uh, that uh, uh, the Democratic, uh, a Democratic president would do that a Republican president wouldn't? Um, it's difficult to tell and may, it may be impossible to tell, uh, certainly without uh, more evidence. But yes, the, uh, so the purpose uh, of you know, the foreseen effects of this interference uh, seems to have been um, uh, to aid in the election of Donald Trump, uh, to create presumably better relations between the US and Russia, uh, possibly to end sanctions, to end NATO expansion, um, uh, uh, but it also had this uh, uh, effect of potentially destabilizing and polarizing the United States. Um, and the question is, you know, if and when word got out. Um, when we come to, very often to look at covert action, we, we, we discuss this problem of pro, this, this concept of plausible deniability. And I think Rory Cormack in, at the University of Nottingham has uh, done a lot of work recently kind of uh, emphasizing that plausible deniability is an invention of America uh, in the 1950s. Uh, and that historically speaking, uh, in fact, uh, a lot of this covert action relies on implausible deniability. The knowledge that, that, that this other country is doing it, uh, but you know, the lack of evidence to actually do anything about it. 
And even if you could do anything about it, you need some kind of military power and so on to, to actually do anything about it. You're, you're not going to start a war because someone's talking about you behind your back. You know, let's, let's, let's face facts, wars are started for much more serious reasons for, for that. Um, and, uh, and therefore, uh, the, the, the need and requirement for plausibility, plausible deniability in a, in a, uh, a, when someone interferes and spreads propaganda and lies about you, so it's, 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 it's not really there. Um, so uh, a lot of people kind of point, a lot of commentators uh, get as far as kind of looking at how Russia operates uh, their active measures and kind of a well kind of worn path of journalists who are covering this kind of story uh, go back to the, the KGB and they go back to uh, the, uh, the, the, the uh, Russian and Soviet, particularly Soviet activities of uh, promoting com compromise, compromising diplomats, compromising people, blackmailing uh, them, uh, producing disinformation and propaganda uh, that can kind of sow dissent within a, a country, uh, as well as leaking material that they have found uh, uh, in the international realm in order to destabilize uh, their enemies. Um, you know, there, there is a move from 2014 uh, in Ukraine to social media trolling, fake accounts and the use of bots, but uh, you know, most journalists and, and commentators on this issue agree uh, that a lot that this is just a new method of doing an old an old tactic. You know, it's an old it's an old it's a new way of doing an old thing. Um, but is it just Russia? Is you know, is this just combined to Russia? And very often we get this these kind of anglophobic sorry anglophobic Russophobic uh, views uh, when it comes to election interference. Uh, the fact is that you know it's not just the Soviet Union uh, or uh, kind of post-Soviet Russia that are doing this kind of thing. If we look at the kind of the British experience in the interwar period, uh, the MI5 investigations into the British Union of Fascists and before that the Communist Party of Great Britain identified foreign money coming into British elections. Uh, so they, 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 uh, 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 tens of thousands of pounds uh, was coming in to the British Union of Fascists, for example, in the 1930s. Here we've got a a picture on the on the left of Oswald Mosley, their leader, um, uh, and below him William Joyce, who later kind of uh, runs off to Nazi Germany and, and serves as their kind of head of propaganda during the Second World War, known as uh, Lord Haw Haw. Um, Mosley and others were imprisoned in, in Britain during throughout the uh, initial years of the Second World War. Uh, it was you know, they, the, the idea was that if Germany had invaded Britain, they would somehow be kind of quizzling out. Um, uh, uh, kind of uh, leaders of a potential new Nazi regime in Britain. Uh, and a lot of the information that they had on Mosley, however, had uh, been collected by MI5, Britain's security services, internal security service, prior to the advent of the Second World War. Um, uh, and this included this information that money had been coming from uh, uh, fascist Italy. Uh, and it was presumed then by investigating where the money came from inside fascist Italy, it looked in fact, that they, they concluded that it in fact had come originally from Nazi Germany. Um, but it's not just the Nazis or the communists or those terrible Russians that are doing this kind of thing. Um, uh, leaking material to the press is something that you know, we expect in day-to-day -day politics. Uh, when it's a national government that's doing it, uh, we kind of seem to falsely kind of get the idea that national governments should be above doing this kind of thing to other national governments. Um, uh, give you one kind of clean example, one nice, nice kind of white propaganda example here uh, from 1917. With America not yet in the fighting in the First World War, um, uh, British signals intelligence uh, decoded a, a telegram from the German uh, uh, government to the uh, German embassy in Mexico City. Um, this telegram detailed uh, a proposal that the German government wanted to put to the Mexican government that if America were to join the war on Britain and France's side and Mexico were to join the war on Germany's side uh, and Germany were successful in that war, well then uh, uh, Mexico could have back all the, uh, the territories that they had lost in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Uh, 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 you know, the whole of the southwest of the modern continental United States. Uh, the, you know, British intelligence leaked this to the New York Times. They did tell President Woodrow Wilson that, that, that this cable existed, 
Um, but they then they then went and sent it to the New York Times so that everyone in America could uh, could be influenced, if you like, by this uh, key new piece of information. It was true. This is what a plan. This is this is a diplomatic communique that was that was uh, uh, decoded by the British. Um, uh, but it was an attempt by Britain, a foreign country, to influence public opinion inside the United States. Um, the fact that it was true doesn't stop Britain from doing it again in the Second World War. You know, the fact that, uh, that uh, and uh, uh, in the Second World War, William Stevenson, uh, the so-called quiet Canadian, uh, who's based in the Rockefeller uh, Center in uh, New York, um, uh, uh, makes up his own version of the Zimmerman telegram. It's a complete fabrication, uh, but he does exactly the same thing that they did in the First World War with the Zimmerman telegram. Um, and basically, it's a, it's, this is a supposed fake, this is a supposed, uh, uh, supposedly true plan for the carving up of South America uh, in the event of a German victory in the Second World War. And the, you know, the, the, the likes of this being put in the New York Times, being broadcast around, the idea was that you would get uh, America, American public opinion on the side of Britain in the Second World War and therefore get, drag them into the war or at least give them more munitions to fight the Nazis with. So this is fake news. This is fake news in the autumn of 1941, uh, 12 weeks or so before the uh, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, now the British continue to do this kind of thing, uh, uh, although they tone, they tone it back down again um, and prefer not to have to tell lies uh, during the Cold War. Part of this is down to this idea that they have a moral, that democracy has some kind of moral superiority uh, to uh, 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 the, the, the autocratic principles of communism. Uh, and therefore, the UK has a branch of its foreign office, a very secretive branch of the foreign office called the Information Research Department that conducts no real research whatsoever. It's kind of a code name for a, a department that's actually involved uh, in spreading uh, pro-democratic pro propaganda uh, into, the, uh, into Russia. Now, this is political interference just because it's political interference in you know, the direction of democracy doesn't, you know, doesn't actually make it any quantifiably different from political interference that is in the interest of some other form of governance. According to John Peck, who had been uh, private secretary to Winston Churchill during the war uh, and becomes a former head of the IRD in the 1950s, the policies of the IRD were to drive a wedge between the hardcore Stalinist communists and those of the non-communist left. So what's interesting is that they chose left-wing propaganda uh, in order to attack the Soviet communism. Uh, so they published, for example, hundreds and translated into, into various different languages, uh, copies of Animal Farm by George Orwell uh, to, and, and seeded libraries, uh, 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 schools. They, they, they kind of uh, pushed this book uh, and it's anti-Stalinist kind of line, although it's still a left-wing text uh, into uh, the, 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 the Warsaw Pact and beyond. Um, MI6, uh, again, it's, this is Rory Cormack's research, um, but he's uh, uncovered uh, some information about a, a slush fund that seemed to be left behind possibly by the Americans uh, at the end of the Second World War uh, that assisted Britain's foreign intelligence agency, uh, the Secret Intelligence Agency, or MI6, uh, with uh, propaganda in uh, the Middle East, pro kind of Western propaganda in the Middle East. And they use this money, it's not, it's clearly a large sum of money, this is, these are 1950s figures, uh, to try and do regime change, uh, to try and foment revolutions, or at least to try and get national governments in the Middle East to do things that are kind of more pro-British and more pro-Western. Uh, so you get things like anti-Nasser propaganda, uh, 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 Operation Scant and Operation Sawdust here uh, uh, come to over a quarter of a million pounds uh, in expenditure. If you compare that with that figure that the Russians spent on Facebook, a hundred grand in 2016, this is millions, this is millions of dollars of uh, propaganda funding. From my own research, I can tell you that uh, a lot of this is going into bribes, bribing journalists, uh, paying them off, uh, supplying them with uh, materials that um, uh, they can use, uh, you know, if, 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 if you're a lazy journalist and you're given a story um, or enough stories to kind of cover what you need to do for the day by nine o'clock in the morning, then you need some money to go off and, you know, go to the pub, go to the restaurant, 
uh, entertain yourself for the rest of the day. Um, so it's these kinds of funds were being used to uh, uh, promote uh, political uh, parties that were opposed to the government, uh, foment kind of revolutionaries, uh, support them, support trade unions perhaps, uh, but also kind of into the back pockets of journalists as well. Um, uh, one note from the Information Research Department when they operated in Ireland in the 1970s uh, was uh, they, they, when they identified what journalists to give a particular story, uh, the justification was that they were the thickest individual who worked for the Irish Times. Um, and uh, I remember having to remove that quotation from my book because uh, I, I worked out who the journalist was they were talking about. Um, so today, you know, uh, in the modern day, the UK do you do do and do still do strategic communications. Uh, if you look at uh, the kind of uh, the counter Daesh communications cell, which operates from the Foreign Office, uh, the military strategic effects unit of the Ministry of Defence, as well as things like the uh, the soft touch conflict security and stability fund, without even going into to mentioning the, the British Council and the work that they do around the world to kind of promote uh, Britain, a British way of life and British values and so on. Um, they've got a budget of about 10 million quid a year. Uh, so, you know, it's that $15 million or so, uh, which isn't a lot by US standards, of course, uh, but it is a lot by, you know, the amount of money Russia was spending on Facebook ads and, the, and, and how concerned we are by that. So uh, UK, the UK outsources to international PR companies as well, um, as well as freelance journalists. Uh, uh, there's evidence of UK money being spent on freelance journalists operating in Syria. Uh, so there's very much uh, an anti-ISIS as well as an anti-Assad line uh, that they've been spinning since uh, 2015. And as far as the US is concerned, you know, it is hardly an exaggeration to say that the policy of averting a third world war may depend on the strength and effectiveness of our efforts in the field of psychological warfare. You know, the very first Cold War president said that, um, and Harry S. Truman was not wrong. Um, the, the benefits of uh, uh, using this type of covert action are in the fact that it is non-escalatory. Uh, you know, the worst that you're going to get is the same back. And if you're confident in your political views and the, in the stability of your political system, then you have nothing to fear by lies and propaganda, don't you? Right? Um, so uh, yeah, the, the CIA covert action types uh, obviously include the, you know, the famous kind of paramilitary uh, 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 operations, assassination attempts, regime change in Cuba and so on. Economic uh, 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 sabotage is also kind of a, a popular thing in the CIA for, for, for a moment, for, for a period. But propaganda is up there as well. Um, you can see from uh, this, 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 uh, uh, this, the Doolittle uh, Committee uh, on covert action from the 1950s. And um, he said, uh, you know, the, the US justify this by saying that um, uh, acceptable norms of human conduct, conduct in the Cold War no longer apply. Uh, that basically um, uh, the, um, the longstanding American concepts of fair play must be reconsidered. We must develop effective espionage and counterespionage services. And of course, uh, even if these are fundamentally repugnant to America's kind of political uh, uh, philosophy. Um, with, uh, I'm not going to go into detail on the, kind of the scope of US covert action, but if I just narrow it down to propaganda, um, we can see uh, numerous different kind of propaganda and uh, uh, ways through which America attempts to uh, interfere, or, uh, not manipulate is the wrong word, but uh, have their say uh, and support groups inside uh, foreign countries during election time. So you've got things like successful programs in Italy and France where, you know, the Christian Democrats in Italy, they remain in power right into the 1990s uh, and are significantly funded by the US. Uh, through the Philippines, British Guyana, I want to talk, talk about um, uh, Iran, uh, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty are listed uh, and uh, by the CIA very often as kind of successful programs. What's interesting is that these are, that these are successes and failures by the, CIA, the CIA's own reckoning. Unsuccessful, they, 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 they consider Chile, uh, Indonesia with the Sukarno Saharto business and the Indonesian civil war there. The Asia Foundation comes out of the Committee for Free Asia, which is a very, which is a, 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 a kind of a, an, an Asian version of Radio Free Europe. Um, they still exist today. They still um, uh, uh, promote kind of groups of uh, upcoming kind of 
students and so on to come and meet together and kind of chat and talk about American values. I don't know, and I'd trade with America potentially. Um, not listed here is uh, covert actions in Vietnam and Cuba, propaganda covert actions, primarily because uh, I, I, you can't separate their success or their lack of success from the other things that were happening in that theater. Uh, you know, the, uh, yes, they were doing propaganda in Vietnam, but the Vietnam War was happening as well. So it's very, very difficult to extrapolate whether it was successful or unsuccessful. And, you know, uh, Tony, um, another interesting case study is obviously the uh, PV success in Guatemala in 1954, uh, where the CIA was using all major propaganda to get rid of uh, Hakka Warbands, which was a left-leaning um, uh, person in Guatemala. And they used everything from uh, religion-based propaganda saying that the communists were going to arrive in Guatemala and they were going to abolish religion and they were going to... Uh, 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 basically enslave everybody. They, they were going to uh, teach uh, this uh, uh, satanic content at school and they will just drop leaflets uh, through airplanes and they will be using uh, La Voz de la Liberación, which is based out of Florida. Yeah, it would be, <laughs> yeah, it would be I, perhaps ironic, but not unexpected if, you know, one of the lies that they were promoting was that Venezuelan voting machines had somehow been rigged uh, to supporting some other group, you know, uh, th these kinds of, uh, and that's the issue. In order to, the IRD made it very, very specific that they wouldn't tell lies, that they wanted to tell, uh, that, that they wanted to do white propaganda methods. And that's different from telling lies. And the, the problem with telling lies in this kind of propaganda is that you, you know, the lie, if you're trying to convince someone else of your argument and you're proven to be a liar, then they won't believe you the next time you supply this information. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not going to go into massive detail on, on British Guyana, but trusted to say that uh, uh, you know, the, the British Guyana was a British colony in Central America. Uh, it continued con continually elected uh, a, a, a party known as the People's Progressive Party uh, that was run by this man here, Chetty Jagan, uh, who was an American-educated uh, dentist uh, who had returned to British Guyana, went into kind of progressive left-wing politics, um, along with his wife, Janet Jagan. And uh, uh, Chetty and Janet uh, were left-leaning. Janet in particular was very left-leaning and she'd been picked up by the FBI in the 1940s as a potential uh, communist. And um, this meant that when it emerged that Chetty Jagan was about to become the leader of an independent Guyana, excuse me, um, it was something that the American government in the year of the Bay of Pigs uh, uh, really wanted to oppose. Uh, and therefore you get a, a letter since 1962, so it's after the Bay of Pigs, uh, a letter from uh, Dean Rusk, uh, the US Secretary of State to Alec Douglas Hume, his opposite number foreign secretary in Britain, uh, saying it is not possible for us to put up with an independent British Guyana under Jagan. Now, MI5 had conducted three investigations into Jagan at this point and had no evidence whatsoever and plenty of evidence that he wasn't a communist and, and, and he had no significant communist link, links. So Douglas Hume replied, uh, how do you suggest that this can be done in a democracy uh, to the American Secretary of State? And uh, Dean Rusk might as well have just said at this point, you know, hold my beer, um, because what they do next is, 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 uh, is, is completely undemocratic and, and kind of beyond the pale uh, of uh, what a respectable democracy should be doing in the world, you think. So in 1963, the CIA fund a, a split along racial lines uh, in the People's Progressive Party, basically promoting a black uh, uh, Guyanese uh, uh, wing of the party uh, uh, and putting and putting them against pitting them against the uh, the, the, the 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 PPP of Asian descent, um, basically dividing a country that was multiracial, uh, 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 metropolitan, uh, uh, dividing it all along racial lines. Um, uh, they do this by funding a general strike, the world's longest general strike, uh, which the CIA fund, uh, so that it only so that it affect, uh, affects the black population of Guyana far less than it affects the uh, Indo-Guyanese population. Um, so people get jealous between each other because the aluminium workers are getting this kind of uh, stipend every every week, and yet they're continually on strike. So British Guyana gains independence. Uh, under Forbes Burnham and Forbes Burnham in, in 1966. Forbes Burnham uh, is you know, widely suspe suspected to have run a series of uh, corrupt elections after that point. 
And what's interesting is that after the Cold War ends in 1991, both Chetty and Janet Jagan get elected as president and prime minister in free popular elections. Uh, once that pressure is off, once you can have a Castro in Central America again, it's, it, 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 guess what? The people of Guyana vote for them. Um, obviously, uh, Chile is and the Allende, uh, 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 problems with the Allende government is, is, is uh, significant. It's dealt with by other historians beyond me uh, far better. And uh, I'm sure, uh, Efren, you'll know about the, the Allende government and, and uh, the, the money that the CIA spent to protect their uh, investment uh, uh, in, in, in Chile. Uh, but of course, this is only temporary. The three million dollars is so that they spend on uh, 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 on uh, political propaganda only staves off uh, an Allende victory for five years or so, um, until eventually they have to back a coup in 1974. They escalate through that, uh, and you end up with the Pinochet regime there, of course. Um, this kind of spending, as, as I said, is non-escalatory, but it can have blowback. Uh, you can find uh, governments can find themselves having to continually spend money in order to uh, uh, and, and con continually back programs that are actually unpopular among among people. So things like the eight million dollars uh, spent on uh, Chile uh, is uh, uh, is you know one aspect of it. But you, you've got Operation Condor where the US spends money over decades uh, training uh, and supporting various right-wing dictatorships from Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay, uh, Bolivia. Uh, these are some of the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the most awful governments of the 20th century. Some of them uh, are uh, dragging people out, uh, doing, conducting extrajudicial killings of political opposition members uh, in the 1970s and into the 1980s. Um, then you get, for example, the, the, the killing of Oscar Romero in El Salvador in, in March 1980. He's the first uh, uh, Catholic priest to be killed whilst in the process of saying Mass uh, since since St. Thomas of Becket in the 12th century. Uh, you know, this, doesn't, this kind of thing doesn't happen very often. Uh, Oscar Romero had been openly opposed uh, to the, uh, the, the the government in El Salvador, he had written letters to Jimmy Carter and 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 and, uh, and, and so on, kind of pleading for America to stop supporting uh, the El Salvador government. Uh, but as you can see in this uh, uh, in, in in this icon image, uh, there's a there's a, a Huey in the in the background, an American helicopter uh, in the background of the image. Uh, Oscar Romero, like uh, Thomas of Becket, Beckett, uh, was actually uh, uh, beatified by the Catholic Church. He's now Saint. Oscar Romero. Uh, uh, if you talk about uh, the, the, the people that killed him had been trained by the CIA. They were not CIA operatives. Years earlier, they had gone and on, on CIA-funded training programs. Um, it's, it's important to differentiate that, but it's important also to consider that this is uh, uh, indirect blowback from, from, from things that may, uh, you may wish to avoid. Yeah, and, and I think that uh, the significance for the region uh, regarding uh, political interference uh, by the United States, uh, whether it's Guatemala, whether it's uh, uh, Chile with uh, replacing agenda with Pinochet, and then so, so as a result, uh, basically developing this uh, this culture of violent protest by the side of the students that is in place up until modern times until today, every September 11th, students gather and they end up clashing with the uh, military police. Uh, precisely they gather because it is uh, on the day that Salvador Allende committed suicide with his AK-47 at La Moneda Palace uh, before he was caught by Allende forces. Um, uh, and it, it all throughout Latin America, uh, where, where in the past, uh, the United States foreign policy was uh, leaning towards supporting friendly dictators. This has led to um, mass political instability uh, as a result of that. It's, it's just a domino effect that has been uh, stemming from uh, the golden era of the CIA in the 50s and up until the 80s. Yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely this, this idea that you should be careful what you wish for um, and what you put your time and effort into supporting. And that ultimately, if you have faith in democracy, surely you should have faith in democracy. Uh, but that's uh, that. That's a discussion for a different class, I suspect. Um, because uh, what, what I find odd is the fact that Iran 
Um, and a lot of what you're talking about, Efren, is replicated in the Middle East, suspicion of America because of their long-term past activities. And um, if they did it that way back in the 1950s, then of course they're doing it like this today. Um, with Iran, you get, of course, the nationalization of the Anglo-Iranian oil company, also known as uh, BP, uh, in 1952. And uh, a, an oil company with huge kind of British interests, of course, uh, that uh, Britain, uh, Britain doesn't necessarily convince America to do this, um, but it doesn't stop uh, it, it, it doesn't stop America from doing it either. And uh, Britain has significant intelligence, which demonstrates quite clearly that Mossadegh is not a communist. Um, and uh, he's doing things by nationalizing the Anglo-Iranian oil company that the British government had been doing for 20 years, nationalizing its coal industry, nationalizing its railways, nationalizing its healthcare. Um, uh, so, uh, but by not, not stopping the suspicion that uh, uh, Mossadegh is a communist, uh, it allows America and British intelligence to work together uh, in order through a series of propaganda efforts primarily uh, to foment the, 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 uh, the, uh, the coup um, on Mossadegh and replace him with the, of course, the, 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 the Shah of Iran, the Shah of Persia. Um, of course, uh, the, the CIA count this as a victory. It's down there uh, in their list of covert actions as a, as a victory. But of course, we know that uh, the Shah himself was subject to a coup in 1979 uh, that created a far more ultra, you know, arguably stable government um, run by the Ayatollahs. Um, so is it better to have a Mossadegh or is it better to have an Ayatollah? Uh, but through kind of thinking and considering the impact, the long-term impact of these kind of psychological operations, um, this kind of election interference, uh, uh, we can we can see how you end up with outcomes that are far far worse um, than uh, uh, than would have happened had you done nothing. Um, now to kind of come up with some conclusions, um, it is certainly not illegal. Uh, none of this, the, the, none of the things I've talked about are actually domestically illegal to do. Um, you can find uh, state in institutions and organizations that uh, they are entirely legitimately doing this kind of work. Um, whether it's morally a good thing to do or not is an is a entirely separate question. Uh, but that moral debate is something that has been uh, uh, going on throughout uh, history. Um, we got from the CIA here, from James Woolsey, uh, the United States must retain the capability to do something in between sending in Marines and sending in former President Carter. Uh, you know, this is a, a wonderfully kind of humorous way of illustrating uh, that uh, this is a non-escalatory uh, 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 tactic. No one is ever going to start a war with you because you planted some scare stories in their newspapers. There are, however, long-term implications that are out of uh, one's control when you let this particular cat out of the bag. Um, and former Defence Secretary Robert Lovett encapsulated uh, this when he said, what right do we have barging into other people's countries, buying newspapers, handing out money to opposition parties, or supporting a candidate for this or that office? Now, I'm not saying for a second that uh, uh, this kind of tactic is going to go away uh, uh, because it isn't useful. It is, it is useful in some respect. Uh, it can, however, with social media, wider uh, online uh, media out there uh, be a lot easier to do than it used to be. You no longer need to have your agents in Damascus in order to put stories in the Syrian newspapers, in order to wine and dine Syrian journalists. Uh, you can do that far, far more easily on, with, on a, in a WhatsApp group. You can, you can do that without leaving the comfort of the country in which it's entirely illegal for you to do, to do that in. Now, according to the US, uh, uh, the CIA's own figures, this kind of interference in politics is a 54% success rate, depending on how you count it. Uh, sometimes it's below 50%, sometimes it's slightly above uh, 50%. Um, though if you look at it in the longer term, uh, you know, the, 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 the destabilization that it can cause in the countries that it affects uh, can lead to actually uh, quite harmful uh, long-term effects, not just for the countries involved, but for those countries' relationship with the West more generally in Efren with South America and kind of my example of, of Iran and more general Middle East uh, kind of means we should be really quite cautious when we uh, come and talk about these kinds of things.
So thanks for listening if you made it this far. That was longer <laughs> than I'd anticipated. No, definitely interesting. And you know, one observation is that um, actually the plans for TP Ajax uh, in Iran for uh, um, uh, that specific operation, uh, they served as a blueprint for PV success in Guatemala. Uh, um, the, the, everything, all the, the, the basic MO by the agency to try to replace Hako Warbands by Castillo Armas uh, was more or less the same, uh, targeting religion uh, and trying to change the political opinion regarding the incumbent uh, person in power. Now, the, the short-sightedness of how you gauge success or failure in, a mission, in, in these kinds of missions is apparent. Uh, the bureaucratization of, you know, did we succeed in getting this election, the election result that we wanted, um, uh, is so short-sighted. Uh, it, it, it reminds me of those, uh, uh, we get uh, graduate surveys six months after you leave university, um, uh, <laughs> judging, judging you know, what job you're in, as if six months after university, you'll suddenly have landed you know, you're, 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 so, you're suddenly president of, or CEO of a massive firm. Um, you know, chances are you're, you're, you're working on it and it's gonna take a long time. Um, no, the, the effects of these covert actions are, are very often to stir dissent, um, uh, to, to stir, uh, to polarize groups of people within a country. Mm -hmm. And they can be very effective ways of doing that. Um, the, the, the issue is what then? And to, to speak about the, what you mentioned about the, the long-term destabilizing effect that it has in any region where this is practiced, um, I, I actually explored this when, when I was studying at Brunel, uh, cover action and how uh, in these various examples, uh, the intelligence agency or the intelligence agencies uh, conducting these, these activities were not really looking into long-term effects. It was a very short fix to prevent communism uh, and you know this this whole uh, red red wave red tide uh, effect, especially in America's backyard. But they never realized, well, because of this, you know, we may have an MS-13 issue down the line. We may have um, human rights uh, abuses in Chile uh, that may lead to uh, this student movement that really has a saying in every single protest, whether it's about uh, college education or healthcare. If you see students, there is a high likelihood that there's going to be violence against um, or targeting public buildings, government buildings, uh, the, the police, the military police, etc. So it, it becomes part of the culture. And uh, from a Latin American perspective, uh, social unrest is probably the biggest risk that one can can be exposed to when traveling, either for business or just as tourism, aside from obviously organized crime. But um, both organized crime and social unrest have ties to this uh, instability that was created by playing with politics, influencing uh, the public opinion, or forcefully removing people and putting uh, friendly dictators in power. But um, I think this is also somewhat related to the African experience. Pilani, what do you have to say regarding that? I'm very interested in uh, uh, some comments. And we have uh, more or less uh, about 20 minutes left of this meeting, so we can uh, get the most out of, uh, out of it. Okay, so uh, of course, Africa has always been very much as well involved, whether it starts off in the Cold War era during even into the post-colonial period where countries were were being decolonized and uh, moving towards independence and so on and so forth. There was a lot of uh, narrative manipulation on many fronts, whether it was for the liberation movement or against the liberation movement. And of course, during the global Cold War, there's definitely been very, very uh, different fronts, especially when it comes to countries like Angola, which was one of the hot instances of the Cold War. Um, so, and then also you, you definitely have a lot of uh, sort of manipulation happening during the final years of the apartheid. You also have um, what was then known as Rhodesia and during the period when it broke away from the United Kingdom and uh, um, the manner in which it was being portrayed internationally, also taking it up to the United Nations. And then in, in actual successive eras, as you've seen many, leaders holding on to power extensively, you will notice that there is a lot of presidencies uh, of this nature who always, who always complain of some sort of COVID action taking place. 
uh, they, they always complain of unseen forces. And one of these particular aspects that has been a really, really grinding point has always been the elections, not just in terms of election outcome. That's been there ever since the Cold War, but also in terms of election conduct and also election observation. Um, um, you will find that a lot of African countries are very, very sensitive to how their election process is being perceived. If it's seen as a sham election, that the immediate expression of doubt and who says it is credible, um, all of that matters. And in many, many instances, that has always been able to be parried, especially because of uh, the manner in which uh, elections in the United States and also throughout Europe are actually being perceived. So with this recent, very, very recent sort of uh, um, interference in US elections and the sort of crises that sort of happened, uh, you know, at the Capitol, you, you have a counter narrative and you can see part of the aspect when you spoke of plausible deniability that that wasn't really um, an issue for the Russian context. Um, because whether someone knows whether they did it or not, the damage is found in that somebody can tamper or tinker with the United States elections. And so that in, in its own way has also given a lot of countries who usually come under a lot of criticism from the West, a lot of ammunition to say, but, oh, wait a minute, um, you also have problems. Um, something, so apart from COVID action to interfere, um, that, that prestige of not having these stories, and we can speak about uh, freedom of media, self-censorship as much as possible, but also I do have a question for you, uh, Anthony, which has to do with the role of media organizations. I mean, it was implicit in the way that you actually described the fact that, um, uh, that sort of certain information gets handed to certain journalists, some, sometimes a certain, uh, 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 employees within media organizations get paid off. And obviously in the past, there might've been an outright collusion, but with the explosion of social media, where would you see the role of media organizations in this sphere? Um, would you say that there still is an ambit for uh, um, uh, um, outright collusion or, or um, and, and I'm saying this especially especially because with the whole outburst of investigative journalism and the sort of uh, um, integrity which media organizations intend to portray, especially during this era of disinformation and them trying to be the more trusted sources than other uh, unverified online and social media sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, so how, how does it happen? and How does it now happen and the difference between it? Certainly, when you look at uh, uh, West Africa in the 1960s, there's uh, MI6 are involved in, in uh, basically producing magazines uh, kind of that, 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 that try to put a kind of pro-Western uh, spin on uh, 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 politics in, in uh, certain countries. And you don't, although you don't need to do that anymore, you don't need to produce your own magazine. Um, uh, certainly, the 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 the, the, the seeding of uh, bad information uh, from disreputable websites and so on uh, uh, through social media uh, is something uh, that is much much quicker. People very often uh, will believe things that they want to believe, and that goes both ways. Uh, it's just so much easier on someone's mind to believe what they want to believe and have that reinforced than be challenged and potentially prove wrong and my god have to go through all the the the, uh, the the problems having to change your opinion on something um and i've seen the, the and the response the most almost hysterical response when when we find disinformation and misinformation and mistruth um uh, can can often put people off uh based the pointing the finger saying you're stupid because you uh, uh, uh you clearly believe in this in this nonsense um actually opens up straight news organizations, news organizations that are do that should be doing the right thing or at least pride themselves on doing the right thing uh, to editorializing themselves too much um, and going down the road of finger pointing, getting angry. How can people possibly believe this rubbish rather than focusing on the job at hand, which is to disprove it. Um, so you get the, the polarization of society 
along with people who know they're right, as, a, as opposed to the people who know they're right. <laughs> and there's, there, you lose the debate uh, that, that you need to have in between those, 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 those uh, in between opinions. Um, so I think it's even more dangerous because uh, whereas previously you just, you just didn't buy that newspaper, and um, now with everyone on Facebook and all the algorithms that go behind that show you particular advertisements based on who you are, what you've looked at and where you live, it can be more actually more difficult to avoid. And uh, adding to that, uh, it's also the fact that if somebody who is not familiar with information, somebody, you know, the, the usual or the casual Facebook user, for example, that has uh, on his or her Facebook feed something that one of, let's say, her contacts is sharing, uh, number one, they only read the title, right? Jeffrey, the, the, you're talking about my mother. <laughs> <laughs> mine as well. So they, they, they just read the title. Uh, maybe if they open the link, they probably read uh, the summary. Uh, but they don't, they don't really uh, uh, take the time to actually vet the source. And what they do is they just reshare that. And that is being reshared by some other network. And it, it's, it's, it's very convenient. It's easier than before, right? This doesn't require really the, um, the bribing journalists. It's just, you, you have, it's crowdsourcing. You, you can have people do the work on your behalf for free. It's an instant chain reaction. You, you just need to place that you need to plant that seed uh, mm -hmm. and you're obviously they're very well aware of how uh, certain parts of the population think so if it's uh, right-leaning they will put something uh, right-wing uh, perhaps inflammatory and then that snowball effect takes place and um, this is why it's, it's more successful now because now everybody's connected so people here in the United States uh, let's say people that are from South America and they want to influence the, uh, the elections in Ecuador that just took place a few weeks ago. These people here in New York, they will, just, they will be sharing false information from sources that I didn't even know existed. <laughs> and that gets shared by people in the country as well. And then all of a sudden, everybody is a pundit in the, in, <laughs> on the topic, but they don't actually realize that they've been played. Um, but I, yeah. Yeah, so I think the only way out of this kind of thing is education to understand that you know, you can be you, you may be being played, um, and it's one of the kind of the reasons why I study uh, intelligence and why I teach intelligence history um, is is you know if you know through history we can understand what obviously the tactics and strategies that have gone uh, that intelligence agencies have employed in the past. Um, which can be useful for in, uh, people who work in intelligence today, but I think it's also useful for an informed citizenry. Uh, and it's, you know, if we have informed people around us, if we understand, you know, if, if the general public understand that, you know, certain people will not tell you the truth, uh, certain people will lie to you, and they 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 value your vote more than you probably value it yourself, and um, and they're trying to play you. Uh, the more we kind of are conscious of that as a as a civilization, as a you know as a set of Kind of uh, uh, democracies, uh, the better we'll all be. Yep. Plus, uh, you know, this this dimensioning of you of uh, uh, not really plausible deniability, but the, the opposite, like being conspicuous about what you're doing. Uh, it's really the essence of psychological operations because you know yeah. it's happening. You don't know mm -hmm. if it's currently been successful or if it's already been affected. Of what you're reporting on is a product of that action. Uh, and it's almost like the Cold War actually never, never stopped. Did it stop? We don't know. Obviously not uh, in, in the traditional sense, in the traditional context from a historical perspective, but now you have different means, easier means to conduct the same activity and trying to basically carry a similar agenda from the most underrated uh, uh, political leader of modern times. I'll put my neck on the line there is Boris Yeltsin, uh, even <laughs> though he was a drunk. Even though he was, he, he got, he, he took Russia in this terrible state and didn't make it worse. <laughs> and, and through a free and fair election, the people selected someone uh, uh, like Vladimir Putin. And, you know, that's, that's the end of it. Uh, but it wasn't Yeltsin's fault. He ran a straight election. Yeah. So, uh, Phil? Well, interestingly enough, um, when a 
comes to sort of understanding like that transition from the Cold War as we know it in history books and what's happening right now, I can definitely um, see some of this uh, narrative warfare taking place, which really has to do with uh, what China is doing in Africa or what Russia is doing in Africa. All of these narratives, um, we are also starting to see a lot of um, other world regions trying to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with all the African leaders. You, you, you have the British Africa Summit and all these world leaders go and attend. You have the China Africa Summit, Russia Africa Summit. <laughs> and so, um, and, 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 and usually during those sort of events, it's always a watershed moment during which there's always um, a lot of publicity, a lot of media reviewing what it is that is being done. And it's always very interesting to sort of compare and contrast um especially especially because if you want if you want to get to the real story on the ground uh you will definitely definitely find that uh the china uh in africa sort of conversation is very very contentious some people saying that it's going very well china is responsible for a lot of infrastructure development they're giving africa what they want they've got the capacity and you've got this other end, which uh, paints China as this very much polluting um, and also just coming into an uh, um, inculcated debt trap. Um, and it's only recently that if you dig a little deeper and you find the academics, most of them, um, academics and journalists, most of them uh, from the US and also from Europe, coming into this and saying, actually, there isn't much evidence for a debt trap. That would, that would upset the narrative, but the media is very much, <laughs> and which is exactly why I was asking about the role of media organizations and sort of perpetuating that, but of course, um, the expansion of social media sources. So it's very interesting to see how the Cold War was there in, in, in something that I would describe as a bipolar sense, but now we're in a multipolar sense. So that has obviously regressed and this political interference as, as COVID action has only multiplied and now it's coming from many different fronts, many different people interfering with a lot of other people for a lot of different reasons uh, and, all, and, and all sort of juxtaposed against each and one another. Yeah, no, don't, don't get me wrong, uh, the Chinese government are committing you know, genocide at the, at the minute, uh, the, the Uyghur population, I don't want to support them in any respect, mm -hmm. but the, yeah, the, you do get when it comes to Africa, um, a kind of a, 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 a China seem to be damned no matter what they do. Either they're uh, kind of uh, supplying this infrastructure, but not, but not the wherewithal through which to use it. They're not uh, supplying the expertise, uh, so they're sending too few people and all this money, but no, no people. Or they're 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 doing the opposite. If they sent lots and lots of people uh, to do the work, then they'd be taking uh, work away from. Uh, uh, Africans and the potential to uh, kind of run these projects away from uh, the people that live there. Uh, and you kind of think, well, what, at what point could China do right in Africa, in African investment? Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, they, 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 these are people who have made up their minds uh, and opinions before they've seen any facts uh, about it. And that, and that, can be the, that can be a dangerous thing. Well, I think this is a good point uh, to uh, to come this uh, to come to an end for this podcast uh, episode. Uh, Tony, uh, thank you very much for taking the time today. Uh, you know, I'm always a big fan of listening to your lectures as a former student, uh, but also now uh, as your friend and colleague. Uh, it it was absolutely very insightful, uh, especially because it is needed that most people educate themselves that this is not only done by Russia, but everybody else is partaking in this. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, and yeah, this has been episode seven of Chiefs of Station. Uh, thank you for the audience for tuning in and uh, we'll be in touch shortly. Thanks. Bye.